Well, good evening. It's good to see you guys. Good to be, oh, thank you. This is plan B. Seriously, it's good to be here in person. I know we got folks coming in. Just relax, make yourself at home, bring your, your drinks in. I uh, wanted to tell you, uh, for those of you that didn't know, I had, uh, uh, unfortunate enough to have a disc that kind of got off the playground. I think they call it a herniated disc, and uh, it's causing me a little bit of pain. And uh, so a week ago, I had surgery on my lower back. And so last week you had a video, and this week you have me live, and, and you're going to vote. And you may say, can we get the video back? Because I heard it on good authority that Chuck Timmons fast-forwarded that video last week. And that was very popular. I know Chuck. I know he would do that. Seriously, uh, I tell you what, that's not something I wanted to have done, but I am just really grateful that I had access to such good medical care. I had a great doctor who diagnosed that condition, and I had a great surgeon who did that. And I'll tell you, it's, and I know many of you know this, it's times like that that you really feel people's prayers. So I want to say thank you very much for all your prayers. It's really working. The recovery's going well. A surgeon said... Uh, probably take six weeks to get you know, fully back to strength and that I could go back to work in two weeks. You notice I didn't tell you his name, and that's because let's not mention tonight to him, all right, because <laughs> we're ahead of the schedule. And seriously, great guy and uh, did a great, great work. I'm very grateful for it. Well, let's jump back into this because this series about biblical origins of the modern Middle East, I'm really excited to talk to you about this series. It's a little different. It's different in this way. We have two objectives in this series. The first objective is we want to understand events in the modern Middle East. We want to understand the economic, the political, the ethnic, and the religious factors that drive what's going on. But we also want to understand the bigger picture of what God has been doing and is doing in history. If our God is the God of real history, past, present, future, his purposes are being played out. And my contention is this. The Middle East is a microcosm of humanity. It is almost like a focal point of all of humanity. And what happens there is representative of really what's happened throughout history and happens around the world. So our goal is to understand what's happening in all its facets, but also to see the larger picture and put it in the perspective of our faith and our understanding of existence. These, these lessons build on each other in the sense that last time we talked about Israel, today we're going to talk about the Arab world, we're going to, the next lesson we're going to talk about Islam, and everything starts layering on each other, and every time there's an added layer of complexity, and my hope is that each time you'll have more and more questions get answered, like, aha, that's why this nation is acting the way it is, and that's why this is happening the way it is. And as we layer it on, I think it's going to become more and more clear. Well, as usual, here's your number to text in your questions. We had several good questions from last week, and I've read those, and I think I've incorporated the answers to them into this lesson. So if I don't answer it as we go, please text your question in again from last time about Israel. But let's talk about uh, Israel, and I want to review that. This is your map of the modern Middle East. This is our macro picture today. What we're going to do is we're going to focus in on different portions of this. We're going to go back in history and bring ourselves up to the future and then start to talk about the implications of what we've learned. A quick review. Last time we talked about Israel. This is the current nation of Israel. This is a modern-day view. You'll notice uh, the Gaza Strip on the left of your map. It's in the news a lot. It's pretty hard not to notice the Gaza Strip. That is a... Israeli con controlled or contained Palestinian area. You'll see the West Bank on the east side of Israel. That is an Israeli occupied Palestinian area. And then you really can't see the northern Golan Heights as well, but that's some land that Israel took in one of the early wars. And we talked about that. The Jewish population, the Israelis, live everywhere else. In other words, they live in between Gaza, West Bank, and then they do live in the Golan Heights. Okay, so that's where the is Israelis um, live today. That is the state of Israel. But you notice that Israel not only has enemies from without, it, Israel actually has enclaves of hostile elements literally within their own, own country. We talked last time about two ideas about Israel. Number one, 
there are both secular and religious reasons for Israel's desire for this land. The first is the idea of Zionism, and I'm really, really simplifying the history and idea of Zionism, but think of it this way. It is the belief that Israel has a historic right to the homeland, that the Jews have a historic right. You don't have to be a religious Jew to think that. And a lot of Jews aren't religious, but they do believe Israel has a historic right. Of course, religious Jews understand from a biblical basis that they have a God-given right to this land. Needless to say, and for reasons that you'll see as we go through in this lesson, that's disputed. The Arab people, the Islamic people, and a variety of other countries disagree with that. And when you see conflict in the Middle East, I think probably the last thing we talked about in our last lesson was this. When, when countries see conflict like that farther away, for example, when the United States is involved in some kind of conflict around the world, if we lose, if it doesn't go the way we want, that's not a desirable thing, but you and I are gonna go home and sleep in our bed at night. There's no threat, immediately at least, to you and to me. Israel's threats are all viewed as existential threats in the sense that anything that happens in this area, whether from within the borders of Israel or from without, if Israel loses, Israel ceases to exist. And so the mindset of Israel towards international conflict and even the geopolitics of the international scene is very much a matter of survival. So when you see Israel criticized for having disproportionate responses, I'm not taking a side and saying, oh, that's disproportionate or it's not. I simply want you to understand, from Israel's point of view, their responses are necessary for their existence. It's not unreasonable to think that countries that view this as not necessary to their existence are going to see Israel as overreacting. And so you'll see a lot of report about Israel to exercise restraint and Israel to hold back. Very difficult from Israel's point of view. In our last lesson, we talked about the history of Israel and the various wars. It is the most historically unlikely thing that I know of from all of human history that Israel should actually still exist. I mean, that is just historically incredibly unlikely. If you think about, and if you remember from our last time, all the threats that Israel's had, the many times that Israel's been nearly stamped out, and yet there's the nation of Israel still here. Very unlikely from a historical perspective. But when you look at Israel's future, you have to admit that its continued survival looks just as unlikely. And that launches us into what I want to talk about in this lesson. Let's go and add another layer on, and I'd like to talk about Israel's neighbors. So let's take a stroll around the neighborhood. I think it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. This is the Arab world. That is Israel's neighborhood. Now, this is a map of the Arab League. You will not see Israel on this map because Israel is not acknowledged as a viable state, as a legitimate state. Where you see the flag of Palestine, which acknowledges the Palestinian state, that is where Israel is, just to put this in perspective. That is the Arab world. Now, I want you to make a distinction because that is not the Muslim world. All of those countries are Muslim, but there are far more Muslim countries than that. So in this lesson, I want to talk about the Arab world. And in the next lesson, I want to add another layer on, and we're going to talk about the rise of Islam and lay that on top of this. So I don't want you to misunderstand. These are all Muslim countries. But what I want to talk about is they have a different kind of bond. They are part of the Arab countries, the Arab League. To be in the Arab League, to be an Arab country, can mean one of two things. It can mean that you are ethnically Arab. Some of these countries are Arabian people. Many of these are not. They are politically Arab. And so I want to talk about both those elements because I want us to understand how this got this way. And I want by the end of this lesson for us to say, I understand how Israel thinks about things. Now I begin to understand how the Arab countries think about things. And then in our next lesson, I want you to understand how Muslims think about things, and that's when the newspapers are going to start getting really uh, clicking together. 
because there's some very inexplicable things happening today. You have Arab countries aligned against Arab countries and Muslims against Muslims. Why is that? We'll answer those questions. But right now, I'd like to answer an interesting question. If you remember last time, I gave you some statistics that in Europe, the majority of people think that Israel is the problem in the Middle East. That's not true in America. In America, around 60 to 65% of Americans think Israel's not the problem in the Middle East, it's other players that are the problem. But in Europe and in Britain, most people think Israel is the problem. The other interesting stat for you is that every year the UN General Assembly passes, oh, 100 or 200 resolutions. Every year, 20 to 25% of the resolutions that are passed in the UN General Assembly are condemning Israel for something. That's just an amazing statistic. And it really gives you an idea of, wait a minute, if that's Israel's neighborhood, why is everybody jumping on Israel's case? And by the time we're finished with this lesson, I'll give you an answer to that. It's actually, there's several interesting answers, but I'm gonna give you the big one, the big reason for that. So let's dive in and let's talk about the Arab world and how the Arab world got to be what it is. Let's go back in time from the modern day. I wanna go back to the time of Abraham. And we're gonna go back to the biblical account and we're gonna talk about a few ethnic things, not so much religious, more ethnic things. Next time we'll talk about the religious elements. But let's go to the Arabian Peninsula. Now we've focused in in this map. You can still see the nation of Israel. You see Saudi Arabia today. So I'm gonna use this current map, but we're gonna look at that geography from about 4,000 years ago. So the story of Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac is told in the book of Genesis. And I'm just gonna tell you the story and I wanna read a couple of things to you. You remember, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Uh, you've been very faithful. Remember he says, get up and move to the land I'm gonna show you. So Abraham gets up, he moves to the land of, it was called Canaan at that time. It'll be called Palestine later. And today it's called Israel. So if I use the word Canaan or Palestine or Israel, we're talking about the nation of Israel today. It just had different names throughout history. He got up and moved to what was then called Canaan. And God said, Abraham, I'm gonna give you all this land. And you don't have any kids, but you're actually gonna become a great nation. He said, and this is gonna be the land that you have, and I'm gonna bless all the world, all the nations of the earth through you. Pretty unique promise. God made a lot of promises to a lot of nations, and he kept every one of them, but this was a very unique promise. He said, you're gonna be a chosen people, and I'm gonna do something significant in history through you. Hold that thought, because you're gonna see that recurring theme throughout this whole series. So Abraham says, bonus, I love this. And so he says, we're gonna have kids, we're gonna have a big nation. Guess what, honey, comes home from work. I mean, when's the last time you came home from work and said, hey, honey, had a great day. God talked to me, said, we're gonna be really famous. Uh, we're gonna appear in the greatest book that's ever written. We're gonna have a lot of kids and it's gonna be a great nation. So what'd you do today? You know, it's, that's the kind of thing that, that he's looking forward to. But he doesn't have any children. Doesn't have any children, you know the story. So according to the custom of the times, this isn't unusual at the time, he has a child with, um, Sarah's maidservant, an Egyptian woman named Hagar. Hagar has a son named Ishmael. And so Ishmael is a very, uh, Abraham by all accounts is very fond of Ishmael. I mean, he loves his son. So God comes back and says to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I wanna remind you that I haven't forgotten my promises. You're really gonna have a son, etc." And Abraham says, took care of that while you were away. Have a son, I'm ready to go. And he says this in Genesis chapter 17. He says, Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. In other words, I understand, and here's Ishmael, and, and turn him into that great nation. And God said, no. He said, that's not what I had in mind. He said, I'll establish my covenant with a son named Isaac. In other words, you're going to have another son like I told you. He said, but as for Ishmael, and this is important to us, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, 12 tribes, and I will make him into a great nation. So what's he saying? He said, this is not the child through whom I'm gonna give you the promise. He said, but for your sake, and you love Ishmael, I will make him into a great nation. And so you know the story goes, then Isaac is born, and then Hagar and Ishmael are sent out into the desert and according to tradition, now I'm gonna slip into some Islamic tradition, 
They go down from the land of Israel and they go down to Mecca. And so and various interesting things happen to them there. But leave it to say that uh, Ishmael begins to grow up. Isaac becomes the child of promise. And the Bible even records Ishmael and what happens to him. In Genesis chapter 25, it says, this is the account of Ishmael, verse 12 and following. He said, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael. And they list off the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. As a matter of fact, the second son is named Kedar. That is where Muhammad traces his lineage, by the way, through the second son of Ishmael, for the tribe of the Quraysh. We'll talk about them next week, because you kind of need to know where Muhammad came from and what he did. In fact, when we talk about Muhammad next week, I want you to think ISIS. You're going to see some very interesting correlations between the rise of Islam and what's happening with ISIS, but we'll talk about that next time. For now, it lists off the 12 tribes, and it says, and his descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, etc. so I'll tell you where that is. They inhabited the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, all the way up to a certain extent through Jordan and Syria, up towards Turkey. So these 12 tribes become a great nation. In the meantime, Isaac, the Jews, you follow that on through the Bible. Does that make sense? That is kind of the genealogical history of Ishmael. According to tradition, the 12 sons of Ishmael become 12 great tribes, the 12 tribes of Arabia. In other words, they become, he becomes the forefather of the Arabic people, the Arabian people, and fill the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Okay? So even at the time of Muhammad, 2,500 years later, living down in Mecca and Medina and on the Saudi Arabia, those people understood themselves as being the descendants of Ishmael, ethnically, okay? Forget the religious element for a minute. So let me show you a little family tree. This is how uh, people think about this in terms of ethnic. You have Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac. Ishmael is the first son. And so for the Arabic people, their understanding is he's the first son, he inherits, and this, all those promises made to Abraham, Ishmael's descendants should, should uh, inherit them. In fact, in the Quran, I'm just going to read you one account. There are actually several like this. A lot of the biblical stories that you're used to about Isaac appear in the Quran as well, but with Ishmael instead. I'll give you one example. You remember the great story of where God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac, and he goes, oh my goodness, if I sacrifice Isaac, all the promises won't be true. It's a test of his faith. And so he takes Isaac, and according to Jewish tradition, takes him to Jerusalem, to the, where the temple would later, much, much, much later be built on top of Mount Zion, on the mountain. And he's about to sacrifice him, and you know the story. God stops him and said, Abraham, sacrifice this ram instead. You've been very faithful. The story in the Quran is a little different. It happens down in Saudi Arabia with Ishmael. So in the 37th chapter of uh, the Quran, it says this. And so Allah said uh, to Abraham, Abraham said, grant me a righteous son. And Allah said, so we gave him the good news of a son, Ishmael. So when Ishmael was old enough to go about with Abraham, Abraham said, my son, I had a dream that I was sacrificing you. In other words, God told, this is really similar to the biblical story, that God told me to sacrifice you, what do you think? And Ishmael replies, Father, whatever you are commanded, whatever Allah tells you to do, do it. He's a very willing son. And so they submitted to the will of Allah, and Abraham laid Ishmael down on his temple. But then Allah calls out, Abraham, you've been faithful. Story picks up in the same way. Sacrifice this ram instead. And the story ends by saying, um, Abraham has proved his faith. He is truly among our faithful servants. So we gave him the good news that he would also have a son, Isaac. And so Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac all appear here, but they appear in different roles. And in the Quran, you see in those stories of Ishmael taking prominence and that Abraham spending a lot of time with Ishmael. Uh, when we get to next week, I'll talk to you about the holiest, holiest site in Islam called the Kaaba. And according to Islamic tradition, Abraham went to Mecca to visit his son Ishmael after they'd been cast out. And he and Ishmael built this holiest site of Islam. So the Quranic description, ethnically, 
understands the, the primacy, the supremacy in the inheritance to come through Ishmael. So this is how they would have the family tree. So I want you to understand that even in the Quran, Isaac appears, and then on down the lineage, Moses, David, Mary, Jesus, all of them appear in the Quran. They're all treated with great honor in the Quran as all being prophets of God, but not the inheritors. And therein lies the difference. So if the Arabic people understand their descent from Abraham through Ishmael to Muhammad, and Muhammad understood that we, the Arabic people, are the real inheritors of that promise. Does that make sense? Very interesting. So what Muhammad does that's very interesting, and I want to talk about not the religious element, I just want to talk about him as a historical figure, and the genius of Muhammad is he starts in Mecca, Medina. I'll tell you a little bit about that next time. But basically what he does, once he sort of wakes up, gets this proposed revelation from God, understands that, hey, we're the inheritors of Abraham's promise, and I need to get the Arabic people banded together because at that time, it's just tribal, all tribal. Wars between the tribes, nobody rules Arabia. This is about 570 A.D., I mean, well after the time of Jesus. But his genius was this. He used that idea and this religion of Islam, but this political idea that we are a people descended from Abraham and we have been given promises by Allah, by God, and he is able to politically unite all those tribes into an Arab identity. And sure enough, about 610 A.D., they come storming out of the Arabian Peninsula and begin to conquer much of the rest of the world. And they come with a religious idea, but also tied very closely to a national idea. Why do they think that they should invade Israel in 610, that part of the world, that it's justified to do it? Because they're the descendants of Abraham, and that land was promised to them. Do you understand what I'm saying? This Arabic idea goes all the way back to a very ethnic start in Saudi Arabia. So the Arabian people today, Arabic people today, understand themselves, they view it as that land is our land. It's God given to us. It's an inheritance to us through our lineage. And so you have a disagreement, obviously, in that level. Now, when they come storming out of there, because I want to lead into, well, if that's the case, then you would expect the Arabian Peninsula to be the Arab people. And that's true ethnically. But I showed you a map that had a lot more people. Well, let me tell you what happened. For example, they come storming out of there. You see Egypt to the west. In 639 AD, Egypt is conquered by the Muslims. This is, was the name they gave themselves. It's not, not necessarily a religious term per se. They were called the obedient ones. They're being obedient to Allah, and they're claiming their birthright. So they come in and they conquer Egypt. Egyptian people are not... Uh, ethnically Arabs at all. But ever since 639 AD, they've become acculturated. In other words, all those countries now that are part of the Arab League, they're not all ethnically Arab, but they are politically Arab in this sense. Like Egypt, from 639 on, have lived under the influence of Islam. And early on, Islam was very Arabic. The Quran is written in Arabic. The, uh, that's the beautiful language. That's God's language. So they brought the language and the culture and the literature and all of that with them. So even though these nations are ethnically not Arabs, they become accultured. So these are all Arabic-speaking nations. These have all for the past 1,300 years been under the influence of Islam and the Arabic idea. And so you can have ethnic Arabs, but then also today, these are all effectively culturally and politically Arab nations. That's why all these nations make up the Arab League, even though they're not all ethnically Arabian. Does that make sense? Hopefully you get the idea that they're going to think alike, they're going to move together, they're going to see themselves as having some kind of identity. These are the Arabic peoples. They think that they are all, for one reason or another, the followers and inheritors of Muhammad. The Arab League today has, uh, and this is a really interesting statistic, this league was formed in 1945, political or, uh, organization, to pursue Arab interests in the world. 
Now, that's not a coincidence that it's 1945. Some really turbulent things are happening at the end of World War II. And we'll talk about that in a minute when we get to the makeup of the modern Middle East. But they banded together with the unified sense of identity as being Arab-speaking people, culturally similar, all Muslim. And so they've banded together into a political alliance to pursue their interests in the world. There are about a little over 400 million people in these countries, and half of them are under age 25. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that, but that's a very interesting statistic. Hold that thought, because it's going to explain some things a little bit later on. So, very young, uh, relatively recent politically, banded together, some of them ethnically, but all of them culturally see themselves as Arab nations. This is the group of nations that after this was formed in 45, Israel is uh, made a country effectively in 47, after World War II, and these countries invaded Israel in 1948. We talked about this in our last lesson. These are the countries that invaded Israel or that fought with Israel again in 1967 and 1973, and then the various smaller skirmishes and so forth since then. Okay? I want you to get an understanding of that because the Arab idea is a little bit different than the Muslim idea because the Arabs understand themselves as bonded together and having a right to this land and having an animosity toward Israel that's kind of independent of religious grounds, has more to do with heritage and who has the historic right to the land. They have a historic enmity, one toward the other, all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac. I mean, it really is like a big, bitter, violent family squabble. I mean, when you pick up the paper and read it, sometimes the only way to understand just the, the sheer volume of emotion in this, you expect nation states to act in a more rational, self-interested manner. But when you pick up the paper, you go, this looks like a family squabble blown way out of proportion. And I want you to understand there's a sense in which it is. And so the Israel-Arab struggle uh, has, has really molded the modern Middle East for quite some time. Well, let me jump back in history again because I want to talk about some other reasons for strife. So you see the historic reasons, how the Arab people spring from Ishmael with Muhammad, throw Islam in, and now you have these 22 nations banded together, and they have this enmity and long-standing history of war trying to eradicate the Jews so that they can have the land that they believe is theirs. So Israel thinks I have a historic right to the land. The Arabs think, no, we have a historic right to the land. And so you, you have a, the basis, obviously, for some of the conflict that you've seen. This, if you, you think this can't get worse, let me tell you how the Western powers even made this worse. Now I want to go back to World War I. So we're going to go back to 1914, so not quite so far. I'll show you what the world looked like over there in 1914. Same part of the world, I want to talk about the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire, I'll give you the short history of this, is founded in about 1300 AD in what is now Turkey. On this map, it's called Anatolia. You see Anatolia right above Syria. Hopefully you get yourself oriented here. That's modern day Turkey. That's the basis of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans were Muslims and they were warlike and they were seeking world domination in the name of, of Islam. If you're thinking, ding, I think I read that in the paper today, you did. And next time we'll talk about some of the historic roots of what both Iran and ISIS and a couple of other groups are trying to do. What they're trying to do isn't new. This is exactly what the Ottoman Turks did in 1300 AD. They held on to this huge Islamic empire all the way up to World War I. So they were the last Islamic Caliphate. And again, we'll explain that in religious terms a little more later. But look at it today simply as a political entity. So here's what's happening in 1914. World War I breaks out. So you have Great Britain, which you can't see, just off the left of our map. And you have France and Russia. They're off our map too. But they're basically fighting Germany. Remember that. And during that war, it became really important to the Germans that the Ottomans come into the war on their side. So you've got Germany against Britain and France, so we're fighting in Europe, right? Remember the stories of fighting in Europe? 
Well, Germany says, I'm going to go down south a little bit and see if I can't get this huge Ottoman Empire to jump into the war on my side. Oh, very bad for England and for France. Very, very bad deal. So what England does, by the way, this is the era of Lawrence of Arabia. Do you remember that historic figure? Fascinating story. This is intricately detailed. And there are a couple of really good books on Lawrence of Arabia, but it's exactly about this era. So what they do, the British send some people like Lawrence down, and they get to know these Arab people that are, are uh, the Arabs down in the Arabian Peninsula. And the Ottoman Empire, by the way, does join the Germans. Germans make them some great promises, so the Ottoman Empire does. So the uh, Allies say, wait a minute, we can't afford two fronts. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go down to Arabia, and we'll get all those Arab tribes, and we'll see if they'll attack the Ottomans from the back and keep them busy. In other words, everybody's trying to get players on their side. It's like a massive game of risk, if you've ever played that board game. So what England and France want to do is to get the tribes in Arabia to attack the Ottoman Empire from behind. So they make them some promises. Now we're dealing with our Arab people. So they make them some promises that I tell you what, you join us and we'll fight the Ottomans from the front, you fight them from the back, and hopefully that'll help us win this war. And when it's done, you can have your Arab Middle East. In other words, we're going to give you all that territory. And the main territory that they want is basically Syria and Israel today. And so they promised them. They said, look, you help us. We'll let you have your Arab territory that you want, right? Secretly, however, in 1915 unbeknownst to the Arabs, there's an agreement made between France and England, and one of you asked a question about this, called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And all that really amounts to is this. They secretly carved up the Middle East like this. I know it's a little hard to see. You see the Saudi Arabian tribes down south. You see Turkey and Syria and all that. That's the Ottoman Empire. And so they secretly make an agreement. They say, if we win the war, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a country called Turkey. We're going to have the French are going to take over the whole area of what's now Syria. And the British are going to take over the whole area of what's now Iraq. And this mandate of Palestine, which is what's today Israel and Jordan. Will you notice what's missing out of this? Guess what the Arabs get? Exactly what they had before the war, which is nothing in this territory. So they secretly make this agreement, even though they've got the Arabs fighting on their side. And then it gets worse. In 1917, okay, this is before the end of World War I, the Foreign Secretary of England, a guy named Balfour, issues a proclamation to the Jewish Zionists, because the Jews are saying, hey, uh, England, if you guys are going to have this land, don't forget us. We're still looking for that Jewish homeland. We think that's our land. God promised it to us, and we'd love it if you'd let us go back there. They issue what's called the Balfour Declaration, which is really just a letter. And this letter basically says that the British government looks favorably upon a homeland for the Jewish people. Now, if you're an Arab at the end of World War I, how do you feel about this situation? You feel very much betrayed, right? They do win the war. They do carve the world up like this, and the Arabs end up getting stuck out in the cold. They feel like they've been cheated. Not only have they been cheated, but then the British said, we think we should give part of this land that you Arabs think is yours to the Jews. I want you to get a sense of the historic animosity here and why there is some of the animosity that you see. So this happened in World War I, and it ends exactly that way. And what happens after that is the French and the English, and I'm just going to mention this briefly, but this has set the stage for a lot of strife in the Middle East. They begin carving up countries out of this land as they begin to move out of these mandates uh, because it wasn't their land to have forever. They're just supposed to control it and make it stable. They begin to draw some very arbitrary boundaries. In other words, you get people sitting in London and Paris drawing up boundaries on a map that have no respect whatsoever for the ethnicity of the people. It's a lot like congressional voting districts. If you've ever seen those, it's like, did an insane person you know, carve this up? 
Well, they really did carve up some countries there that hugely, for example, I'll just give you one example. You notice that they have Turkey up there and then they have the mandate of Iraq. Well, up in the northern part of Iraq, Kurdish people. Kurdish people don't get along in Iraq today. They're ethnically separate, they're religiously separate. If anything, they belong more with Turkey than they do with Iraq. But it was an arbitrary boundary and it just set up hostility, guaranteed hostility. And sure enough, that's what you saw all the way up through the next decades until modern times, you still see it. What do the Kurds want? Their own nation. They're saying, hey, back in 19, at 1918, at the end of the war, some colonial powers, right, England and France, divvied these arbitrary guidelines up. We don't want to be part of Iraq. We don't even want to be part of Turkey. We want our own country. They just drew a line right down the middle of our street. So I, I want to give you a sense here of historically what has happened to bring up some of these hostilities. So when the Kurds and others, I'm just using them as an example, say, we got a real issue being Iraqis, or we have a real issue being Turks, they've got a legitimate point in the sense that, who decided that for us? And so you see what's happening. And the heavy-handed way the Arabs think they were treated and that the British favored the Jews has left them with a lot of hostility. Now, we haven't put Islam on top of this yet. I want you to understand the political hostilities that go back in history, okay? Fast forward 1945, you have the Jewish Holocaust, you come out of World War II. I mean, this is all in flux between World War I and World War II. After World War II, you have the Holocaust, international sentiment, of course, turns very much towards the Jews. The UN is formed. It's very much controlled by the United States. The British have already said they favor a Jewish homeland. Truman, against, by the way, the advice of many of his advisors who think we will forever alienate the Arab world if we do this. And Truman says, but we're going to do it. And they agree to establish the state of Israel, a Jewish homeland in 1947. That's the last straw for the Arabs. So if you think about our rocky relationship with the Arab countries in general, this is the source of it. Let's leave Islam out of it, leave Christianity out of it. The geopolitics of this are enough to guarantee that there will be strife, ethnic strife inside the Middle East, the way it was carved up, and that the Arab nations will have an undying hostility towards Britain and towards the United States for arbitrarily, in their view, planting the Jews and giving them some Arab land as their homeland. Do you begin to understand some of just simply the political and ethnic hostilities there? Once you add Islam, it's like pouring gas on the fire, but I wanted you to understand the politics of this up to this point. So let me pause for just a second to see if there are any questions, because the next thing I want to do is I want to go to the flashpoint, and I want to talk about the Palestinians, but this is a good break. By the way, one last comment. Up to this point, we're up to 48, and then the Arabs, the Arabs attack immediately in 48, try to wipe Israel out, just wipe them out right away. They don't succeed. A lot of help from the West, and they don't succeed. Israel's thought of as the underdog. Even in 67, even in 73, as the Arabs are trying to wipe them out. World opinion, UN opinion, is that Israel is the underdog fighting against, remember that picture of the Arab world? Israel right here, all the Arab neighbors? Israel was the underdog. That's going to change, but hold that thought. Questions? Yes, we have a few. Is Iran part of the Arab League? And are the nations in the Arab League all speak different languages? Do they? Yeah, okay. First of all, Iran is not part of the Arab League. Uh, they are ethnically not Arab. They are Persians, historically. But they also have, uh, even though they're Islam, and we'll, this will make more sense after we talk next week about the rise of Islam, but no, they're not part of the Arab League and uh, they're, they're not part of that. But then the question is, do these countries speak different languages? Yes, they do, but they largely have spoken Arabic for a long time. So they're all Arabic-speaking countries, even though there are some other languages there. They're united. Um, it's almost like, think about the Western world is united by English as a language, even though we're not all ethnically Americans, so to speak. Think of it kind of in that way. They've been embedded for over a thousand years with the culture and language of the Quran and the Arabic culture. So they don't, there are other languages there, but they are all bound together 
as the Arab League and their Arabic-speaking nations. Is it a correct interpretation of the Muslim faith for Muslims to kill non-Muslims? Uh, the question, is it a correct interpretation of Islam for Muslims to kill other Muslims, or was it non-Muslims? Non-Muslims. They're doing both. I'll tell you what, I'll just tell you why they're killing either one next time, okay, in our next lesson. Because you actually have to kind of, under, I mean, why they're killing non-Muslims, that's not so hard, and I'll bring my Koran back next week, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Because I want you to understand why are there radical Islam, and why is there not so radical Islam, and which one's right? And then the harder question, how in the world do Muslims justify killing other Muslims? I'll tell you that, but it'd be better in the context of the rise of Islam. Do you want to talk about ISIS next week? If you don't mind, I'd rather talk about ISIS next week, because what I'm trying to do here is, again, and I beg your patience here, to really understand this, it's not just Islam. I want you to understand the, the history of the Arab issues with Israel. It's not just religious. Their economics, their politics, and their age-old ethnic issues going on. So you've got Israel's view of the world. Now I hope you understand the Arabic view of the world. I'm about to tell you the Palestinian view of the world. And then in our next lesson, we'll talk about now let's put Islam on top of that. And things are really going to start to click. Because otherwise, if you don't understand this, you can't understand why would Muslims be fighting Muslims. For example, here's a great example. The most recent issue with Hamas shelling Israel, and this is embarrassing for me to tell you this, but America was on the sidelines of brokering the peace deal. You know who was brokering that peace deal? Israel and Egypt. Now think about that for a minute. Hamas is a Sunni Muslim organization. Egypt is a Sunni Muslim state. But Egypt allied with Israel to contain Hamas. To understand that, it's, obviously it's not just religious, because let's face it, Egypt's got a lot more in common with Hamas religiously than they have in common with, with Israel. You need to understand some of the politics as well. It's not just religious. So if we can, I'd like to layer that on top of the geopolitics. Because to understand the idea of a caliphate, you also have to understand uh, the idea of a nation. Arabs are very comfortable with the idea of nations. Islam is not. And so you're going to see some interesting conflicts, and it's going to really impact ISIS, because you're going to wonder why are some of the Muslim states against fellow Islam, uh, fellow Muslims in Iran? Why are they opposing fellow Muslims in ISIS? Why are they opposing fellow Muslims in Hamas? That's going to make more sense when you start to think they are also interested in their international boundaries. You'll see that in a second when we talk about Palestine. So yeah, if we could keep the Islamic layer till next time, I think it'll make more sense. Um, because of the strife that was created when this area was carved up, did France and Britain uh, use dictators to control them or other methods? Yeah, that's probably more than I'm uh, prepared to get into for time's sake here, but it's a fascinating story. But absolutely, uh, when they had those mandates, Britain and France were... It depends on your version of the story, but they were certainly profiting from the mandates, and they were using whoever they could get to control the area. I don't mean it to sound quite that bad, but there were uh, the Hashemites in Jordan who end up controlling the nation of Jordan, King Hussein, it's the Hashemite kingdom, it goes back to World War I, and that's a deal that was made with a tribal leader uh, by the English to say, you control this area, we'll make a deal with you, and sure enough, the rulers of Jordan today are still the descendants of that tribe. So they did use various means to control those areas and those provinces. Very interesting politically, but we just don't have enough time to go into it. What was the state of Christianity in this region during the time before and during the two world wars? Yeah, Christianity in this region is not big. They're not a ton of, there are a lot of Christians here now. I mean, it's not like a trivial amount of Christians in this area now. But if you think about it, because of the Islamic dominance in the Arab world, historically, uh, Christian, Christianity hasn't been a huge influence here. The Ottoman Empire was probably 80 to 90% Muslim. Uh, these Arabic nations are high, high percentage Muslim. So not a significant Christian influence there. Okay, good. Let's move on. I want to talk to you about the Palestinians, and then we'll tie this together. And then next time come, and we're just going to layer all the Islam on top of this. And uh, that's another interesting story. Let's talk about the Palestinians. 
First of all, who are the Palestinian people? The Palestinian people are simply the people who are living in what's now labeled Israel, in that area, historically. Do they go back to the time of Canaan and Abraham? No, not particularly. Did they come from various places? Absolutely. Did they think of themselves as a unified people? Nope. They thought, remember in World War, after World War I, the British mandate of that area of Palestine, which included Jordan and Israel, all those people were called the people who live in the mandate of Palestine. That's it. They're not Oklahoma Cityans. They're not Oklahomans. They're not Americans. They're just the people who live there in the mandate of Palestine. So they're called, well, those are the Palestinian people. There's no sense of order. It's not until 1921 that they begin to organize and start to think, you know, maybe we better get together and start looking out for our own interests. And so here's the history of the Palestinian people. They are simply the descendants of the people who happen to live there. They're Arabic because they've been conquered way back when by the Arab people. They're Islamic largely because they were conquered by the Muslims way back when in the seventh century. The modern state of Palestine consists of about four and a half million people. They live in Gaza and the West Bank they are almost predominantly Muslim, but there are Christian Palestinians, but they're still predominantly Muslim. A lot of them are refugees from the war in 48 and the war in 67. In other words, if you, the, I, and this is just historic fact, I'm not trying to take a political stance, but the Palestinian people saying we have a right to this land historically, that claim simply says we were living here in World War I and World War II. It's not like we're related to Ishmael, we're religiously, you know, the promise came to us. Do you understand what I'm saying? They just happened to be living there and they were displaced in 47. We said, actually, we're gonna carve this up and we're gonna give most of this land to the Jews and you guys can live over here. Well, they didn't like that and you wouldn't like it either. So they begin to think at that time, hey, maybe we ought to start thinking of ourselves as Palestinians and get an identity. And so in 1964, they formed the Palestinian Liberation Organization to represent their interests. And that's the first time you really start hearing the idea of a Palestinian nation or state. That's, again, this isn't a political statement, it's just a historical statement. That's a recent construct. Those people have been constructed into a nation to protect their interests. They don't necessarily have any historical affinity for each other. So the PLO and the Palestinians uh, take over their interests. They were in Jordan back in 1970. They tried to assassinate the king, the PLO did, uh, and twice. And so he had his army absolutely get after him. And it was a brutal oppression. This is Muslim versus Muslim. But what is the PLO trying to do? They're trying to take over the nation of Jordan. Jordan says, I don't care if your brother Muslims or not. You aren't taking over our nation. That's a very Arabic idea. Right? So they suppress the PLO. PLO flees up to Lebanon. And so in 75, all that trouble back in Lebanon, PLO's in the middle of that. Israel invades, we go, you know, we get involved in that, boot them out of there. They end up going over to North Africa to Tunisia. They get booted out of there. The Palestinian people have been a little bit of a football in the Arab world. But it's a very convenient construct. And again, I'm not taking a side, I'm just telling you that. If you notice the way the Arab nations treat the Palestinians, fellow Arabs, they don't even let them in some of these countries come in and be refugees. Jordan said, hey, last time I let you people in, you tried to take over my country. So you understand what I'm saying? So there are some national interests playing here, but there are also some interests in having, championing the right of the Palestinian people to have their own nation. Now, Egypt and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon say, yeah, but not here. You know, we love you, brother, but you can't stay at my house, right? So there are some national interests playing themselves out here, but it has become very convenient, and, it has, and there is some truth in this, that the Palestinians say, look, well, we've got nowhere else to go. We want a piece of this land, and we want to govern ourselves. But the way they've done it, the way they've tried to achieve it, is two ways, terrorism and oil. And it's been fairly effective in some ways and not so effective in other ways. But here's where I want to explain something about how the tide turned. Remember that map of all the Arab world versus tiny little Israel, the little underdog? Now, however, 
this has turned into, it's not the Arabs versus the Israelis, it's Israel versus the poor little Palestinians. That's a completely different narrative, isn't it? It's not 22 Arab nations trying to destroy Israel like in 48. All the world opinion was on the side of Israel. Now it's like, oh, come on, Israel. It's only four and a half million of these Palestinians. They've got nowhere to go. We kicked them out of the land. Who becomes the underdog now? The Palestinians. And politically, that's very, very useful. And, and I just, that is just a matter of fact. So the question is, why is Israel seen as the problem here? Why do most of the UN resolutions condemn Israel? Because now the narrative has changed. It's not the Arabs versus Israel. It's Israel oppressing the poor Palestinians who simply want a nation. Now, there is some truth in that. I'm not trying to despise it. I'm simply telling you, I want to answer the question, why has world opinion turned? Because the narrative of who the battle is between has turned. Does that make sense? Very compelling is not a religious issue, it's just now portrayed as freedom fighters. The Palestinians simply want their own nation. Now the fact that they've refused uh, Begin's offer to have their own nation, Arafat refused it historically, doesn't change the fact that every time you see Israel acting, remember Israel's thought? Existential threat. I got 22 hostile neighbors here. What did the world see? Israel versus the poor unarmed Palestinians. That's, this narrative has politically, intentionally been changed, and it's really a threat to Israel as things go forward. Well, let me stop there and take a couple more questions, but I want to make sure you kind of saw the significance of how the Palestinians politically play into this. As fellow Arabs, they're kind of a problem to their Arab brothers and sisters, but as a Palestinian nation struggling to be freed from Israel, ah, now that's quite useful. Did Rome give the name of Palestine to the land of Israel in about 70 AD? Is that the origin of the name? The origin of the name Palestine comes from the Romans. The uh, Romans called this area, because when you, you gotta have a, call these areas something. It was the British mandate, it was the land of Canaan, etc. The Romans called it Phil, uh, Palestina, which is drawn from the name of the Philistines, the land of the Philistines. So that's just what they named it. And that's where the origin of the name Palestine. It's not an Arabic name or anything. That's a good comment. That is where that name Palestine came from and it stuck. Are the Palestinian people descendants of the people that were living in the land of Israel when the Israelites came in in the book of Judah and God told them to drive all the people out? Yeah, so let's go back to the time. The uh, question is, is when the uh, exodus happens and think Joshua, go in and take the land. Think 1400 BC-ish, right around there. Question is, are the people, the Palestinian people, the descendants of the people that were there then? No, not really. I mean, could some of them be? Yeah. But is there an identity? No, not at all. Again, and I'm, making, I'm not making a political statement. That's just a historical fact. The Palestinian people are simply the people that were living in the area of Palestine in the 1920s and 40s, etc. They have never traced a historic identity back in history, unlike the Arabs. Arabs trace a historic identity back to Ishmael. Jews trace a, a fairly unbroken historic trail back to Isaac and Abraham. Palestinians do not and have not trace any ethnic identity back to those people, as a matter of fact? That's a good question. Okay, good. Well, let me sum up with a couple of lessons, uh, just to have a couple minutes left. I want to just draw a couple of conclusions. I know this is a lot of data, but as we go, things are really going to start to click with this. Hopefully a few things click tonight. Now you understand why Israel, how can Israel be the bad guy when the Arabs have been trying to wipe them out for so long? because now it's not an Arab versus Israel paradigm, it's Israel suppressing the Palestinians. Israel looks like the bad guy. Israel looks like the big bully versus the Palestinians. That's a very useful way to change the dialogue. That's why, well, that's one of four reasons, but it's one of the big reasons that the UN is so often so hostile to Israel. They look like the big bully in the neighborhood. A uh, couple of things, one, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit, and I'll just do it in another lesson about, in the meantime, 
what is Russia and China and some of the other geopolitical players doing in this area? And I do want to get back to that, but for tonight, let's just talk about the Arab-Israeli, that Arab sense of betrayal. I want you to understand that Arab identity of a nation state. That's going to be a very foreign concept when you, we get to Islam next week, and you'll see how that becomes very fluid. So there are some geopolitical agendas, but there is a legitimate dispute. And when I say legitimate, I simply mean the two sides, both are convinced they are right about who has a legitimate claim to this piece of property. Whether you agree with it or not, the Arabs have a case and they say, we honestly think we have a legitimate historic right to this land. The Jews say, we have a historic right. Jews say, hey, read the Bible. Muslims say, hey, read the Quran." right? Our version. We're the winners. And we'll talk about that a little bit in uh, future lessons as well. So there is a basis. I want you to understand there's a basis for it. There's a history of betrayal, right, by the West. Because you can sometimes ask yourself, well, I understand why the Arab nations hate Israel so much. Why do they hate the U.S.? I hope now you understand why they hate the U.S. so much. There's some history there. Make sense? So you start to see why that can happen. Hostility against Israel is also a unifying force for the Arabs. The Arab countries don't all get along. They have conflict with each other. But if you want to settle down, this is kind of the way it worked in my family. Whenever we were having uh, the kids, we were squabbling with the kids, we could all unite against our parents. In the sense that if we were, I was arguing with my brother, we could at least agree that, gosh, I wish our parents would let us stay up later. Words, if there's a third party, to direct your animosity to, it kind of gets you over some of your issues. Well, the Arab nations come together past their differences often by a unified and shared sense of hostility with Israel. And so you will see these terrorist organizations trying to pick a fight with Israel. Historically, this has been true for decades. And you see it happening now with Hamas. Why do you think Hamas is firing rockets into Israel? I mean, realistically, no one in Hamas is stupid enough to think that they're going to defeat Israel. But it's possible if Israel does something bad enough, kills enough Palestinian kids on the news, that the Arab nations might then band together and say, we can't tolerate this. In other words, we're not necessarily that friendly with the Palestinians and Egypt and Iraq. Well, we haven't been getting along, but I'll tell you what. Well, let's all come together and deal with this issue. A lot of the goals of terrorism are not to defeat Israel. They're to spark that Arab League into action. Make sense? So that hostility can be a unifying force for the Arab world. And then my last lesson, I'll give you just a little bit of a faith lesson here because I want you to understand there is a bigger picture happening in the midst of all this. And I know you've taken in a lot of data. But I want you to think of, for example, when you have a disease, sometimes they'll take a blood sample and put a drop of blood on a slide and you'll look into a microscope and it'll make that one drop of blood really big and you can say, ah, I see the problem, I see the disease. I want you to think about the Middle East like that when you pick up the newspaper. It's almost like the Middle East is humanity in a little drop on a slide that you're looking at a microscope and you see this, oh my goodness, we've got ethnic strife, we've got political strife, we've got religious strife. It's like, oh my goodness, what's happening here? I want you to understand that that is a, the disease of humanity being blown up. The Middle East, is fallen humanity playing out its religious, ethnic, economic, selfish interests one against another. It's past hatreds, it's past wrongs. All the things that you see historically happening here that lead to this conflict is in a sense the key to the modern Middle East, but I want you to see that this is sort of like a drop of blood telling you what's wrong with the whole organism. This is the story of humanity. And here's where we enter this in a unique and different way. And we're going to focus a lot on geopolitics and that kind of thing, but I don't want you to lose sight of what God is trying to do here. God's not trying to make a political solution to the Middle East. Here's what God did. He said, I made this church, and here's the point. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. If there is ever going to be unity amongst humanity, this is the only way. It will never happen 
and you may disagree with me on this, but I just got to tell you, 4,000 years of history is on my side. It is not going to happen through peace treaties. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue peace treaties. I want you to understand, God is doing something on a completely different plateau, and you are part of that. We are heirs to the promise. We bring unity to the world. You can be Arab, you can be Persian, you can be male, you can be female, you can be whatever. We can all become one in Jesus Christ. That's the message that we actually bring into this world situation. So I want to give you some hope, because when you pick up the newspaper, it's hard to find hope. And I want you to understand the God of history has a plan. You are part of that plan. And I'll give you a peek at the end of the Bible. We win in the end. I appreciate your attention. I know that's a lot of information. Next time, I want you to hold that thought, Arabs versus Israel, Palestinians, the underdogs, and now let's just slap some Islam on top and make it really interesting. I'll see you next time. Thanks.